Matthew chapter 14 verse 22 through chapter 15 verse 20. Verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitude away. Burkett notes, Jesus constrained them, that is, he commanded them to go away before him. No doubt they were very loath to leave him and to go without him, both out of the love which they bear to him and themselves. Such as have once tasted the sweetness of Christ are hardly drawn away from him. However, as desirous as the disciples were to stay with Christ, yet at his word of command they depart from him. Where Christ has a will to command, his disciples and followers must have a will to obey. Verse 23. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Burkett notes. Observe here, 1. Christ dismisses the multitude and then retires to pray, teaching us, by his example, when we have to do with God, to dismiss the multitude of our affairs and employments, of our cares and thoughts. Oh, how unseemly it is to have our tongues talking to God and our thoughts taken up with the world. Observe, too, the place Christ retires to for prayer, a solitary mountain, not so much for his own need, for he could be alone when he was in company, but to teach us that when we address ourselves to God in duty, we are to take all the helps, furtherances, and advantages we can for the doing of it. When we converse with God in duty, oh, how good it is to get upon a mountain, to get our hearts above the world, above the worldly employments and worldly contagions. Observe 3. The occasion of Christ's prayer. He had sent the disciples to see he foresaw the storm arising, and now he gets into a mountain to pray for them, that their faith might not fail them when their troubles were upon them. Learn hence that it is the singular comfort of the Church of God that in all her difficulties and distresses, Christ is interceding for her. When she is on the sea, conflicting with the waves, Christ is upon the mountain, praying for her preservation. Verse 24. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. Burkett notes, Note here the great dangers the disciples were in, and the great difficulties they had to encounter with. They were in the midst of the sea, and were tossed with the waves. The wind was contrary, and Christ was absent. The wisdom of God often suffers his church to be tossed upon the waves of affliction and persecution, but it shall not be swallowed up by them. Often is the ark of the church upon the waters, seldom off them, but never drowned. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Burkett notes, Christ, having seen the distress of his disciples on the shore, he hastens to them on the sea. It was not a stormy and tempestuous sea that could separate betwixt him and them. He that waded through a sea of blood and through a sea of wrath to save his people, will walk upon a sea of water to succor and relieve them. But observe the time when Christ came to help them, not till the fourth watch, a little before morning. They had been many hours upon the water, conflicting with the waves, with their fears and dangers. God oftentimes lengthens out the troubles of his children before he delivers them, but when they are come on an extremity, that is the season of his succors. And God suffers his church to be brought into extremities before he helps her, 
so he will help her in extremities. The fourth watch, Jesus came, etc. Verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Burkett notes, See how the disciples take their deliverer to be a destroyer. Their fears were highest when their deliverer and deliverance were nearest. God may be coming with salvation and deliverance for his church when she, for the present, cannot discern him. Verse 27. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Burkett notes, Observe, when the disciples were in the saddest condition, how one word from Christ revives them. It is a sufficient support in all of our afflictions to hear Christ's voice speaking to us and to enjoy his favorable presence with us. Say but, O Savior, it is I, and then little evils do their worst. That one word, it is I, is enough to lay all storms and to calm all tempests. Verses 28 through 30. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the winds boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the mixture of Peter's faith and distrust. It was faith that said, Master. It was distrust that said, If it be thou. It was faith that said, Bid me come to thee. It was faith that enabled him to step down onto the watery pavement. It was faith that said, Lord, save me. But it was distrust that made him sink. Oh, the imperfect composition of faith and fear in the best of saints here on earth. Sincerity of grace is found with the saints here on earth. Perfection of grace with the saints in heaven. Here the saints look forth fair as the moon, which has some spots in her greatest beauties. Hereafter they shall be as clear as the sun, whose face is all bright and glorious. Observe, too, that whilst Peter believes, the sea is as firm as brass under him. But when he begins to fear, he begins to sink. Two hands uphold Peter, the hand of Christ's power and the hand of his own faith. The hand of Christ's power laid hold on Peter, and the hand of Peter's faith laid hold on the power of Christ. If we let go our hold on Christ, we sink. If he lets go his hold on us, we drown. Now Peter answers in his name, Cephas, and sunk like a stone. Verses 31 through 33. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the winds ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. Burkett notes, Observe here, the mercy of Christ is no sooner sought but found. Immediately Jesus put forth his hand and caught him. Oh, with what speed and what assurance should we flee to that sovereign bounty, from whence never any suitor was sent away empty. Observe, too, though Christ gave Peter his hand, yet with his hand he gave him a check. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Though Christ likes believing, yet he dislikes doubting. A person may be truly believing, who nevertheless is sometimes doubting. 
but his doubting eclipses the beauty of his believing. Verses 34 through 36. And when they were gone over, they came unto the land of Genisaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Burkett notes, Observe 1. Our Savior's unwearied diligence in going about to do good. He no sooner landeth, but he goeth to Genesaret to heal their sick. Observe 2. The people's charity to their sick neighbors in sending abroad to let all the country know that Christ, the great physician, was come among them. Observe 3. Where lay the healing virtue, not in their finger, but in their faith, or rather in Christ, whom their faith apprehended. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thou disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Burkett notes, The former part of this chapter acquaints us with a great contest between our Savior and the Pharisees about their traditions and old customs, which they valued more than the commandments of God. They accused the disciples for eating bread with unwashed hands, which, though it were in itself but a decent custom, the Pharisees made it a religious rite, for which reason our Savior and his disciples would not observe it. Whence we learn that what is in itself and may without offense be done as a civil custom ought to be discountenanced and opposed when men require it of us as a religious act or place religion in it. The Pharisees placed so much religion in washing their hands before meat that they looked upon it as highly criminal to neglect it as to lie with a whore. One of them, being in prison and not having water enough to drink and to wash his hands too, chose rather to die with thirst than to transgress the tradition of the elders. Verses 3 through 6. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of non-effect by your tradition. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the heavy charge which our Savior brings in against the Pharisees, namely, for violating an express command of God and preferring their own traditions before it. You make void the commandments of God by your traditions. Observe, two, the command which our Savior instances in as violated by them. It's the fifth commandment, which requires children to relieve their parents in their necessity. Now, though, the Pharisees did not deny this in plain terms, yet they made an exception from it, which, if children had a mind, rendered it void and useless. Pharisees taught that in case any would give a gift to the temple, which gift they called Corban, and of which they themselves had a great share, that then children were discharged from making any further provision for their poor, aged, or impotent parents, and might say unto them, After this manner, that which thou ask for thy supply is given to God, and therefore I cannot relieve thee. 
so that covetous and graceless children looked upon it as the most frugal way, once for all, to find in a temple, rather than pay the constant rent of the daily relief of their poor parents. Learn that no duty, gift, or offering to God is accepted where the duty of charity is neglected. It's more acceptable to God to refresh the bowels of his saints, who are the living temples of the Holy Ghost, than to adorn material temples with gold and silver. Verses 7-9 through Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouths, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Burkett notes, Our Savior reproves the hypocritical Pharisees for these things. One, that they preferred human traditions before the divine precepts. Two, that by their human traditions they made void the worship of God. It is God's undoubted prerogative to prescribe all the parts of his own worship, and whosoever presumes to add thereunto, they worship him in vain. Our Savior further shows that all this proceeds from the insincerity of their hearts. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Whence learn, one, that the removing of the heart far from God in worship is a great sin, and a high degree of hypocrisy. Two, that whatever outward show and profession of religion men make, if their hearts be not right with God, and they do not proceed from an inward principle of love and obedience to God, they are under the reign and power of hypocrisy. Ye hypocrites, in vain do you worship me. Learn three that we must not be forward from Christ's example to pronounce men hypocrites, because we have neither the authority nor knowledge of the heart which Christ had to authorize us to do so. Christ here called the Pharisees hypocrites, one, because they placed holiness and religion in ceremonies of human invention, two, because being so superstitiously careful to avoid bodily pollutions, they left their hearts within, full of hypocrisy and inequity. Verses 10 and 11. And he called them the multitude, and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which come out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, leaving the Pharisees with some dislike, applies himself to the multitude, and shows them the true spring and original fountain of all spiritual pollution and uncleanness, namely the filthiness and impurity of man's heart and nature. When boiling in the heart, the scum runs out of the mouth, whereby informing the multitude that not that which is eaten, but that which is spoken defiles a man, not the meat eaten with the mouth, but the wickedness of the heart, vented by the mouth, pollutes a person and God's account. Verses 12 through 14. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how the disciples wonder that our Savior did so little regard the displeasure of the Pharisees. Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended? Although nothing vexed the Pharisees more than the discovery of their false doctrine before the multitude, 
Yet her Savior did not stick to detect their errors and to declare the truth, let the effects of their displeasure be what it would. Sinful man-pleasing is fruitless and endless. Observe, too, our Lord's answer, which shows a double reason why he thus slighted the offense taken by the Pharisee. One, he compares the Pharisee's doctrine and tradition to noisome weeds in the church, planted there not by God, but by themselves, and consequently shall certainly be rooted up. In matters of religion, if men will act according to the dictates of their own fancies and not walk by the rule of God's word, they may please themselves, perhaps, but they can never please their maker. Divine institution is the only sure rule of religious worship. 2. Christ compares the Pharisees themselves to blind guides. They are blind leaders of the blind, leaders and followers both blind, who will certainly and suddenly fall into the ditch of temporal and eternal destruction. Learn, one, that ignorant, erroneous, and unfaithful ministers are the heaviest judgment that can befall a people. Two, that the following of such teachers and blind guides will be no excuse to people another day, much less free them from the dangers of eternal destruction. Verses 15 to 20. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with an unwashed hands defileth not a man. Burkett notes, The disciples, desiring the interpretation of the foregoing parable, our Savior gives it to them, but withal expostulates with them that they did not understand a thing so obvious and plain. Are ye yet without understanding? As if he'd said, Have ye sat thus long under my ministerial teaching and enjoyed the benefit of my company and conversation, and yet are no further proficient in knowledge? Once learn that, that our Lord expects a proficiency in knowledge from us, answerable to the opportunities and means of knowledge enjoyed by us. Next, he gives them the sense of signification of the parable, telling them that it is out of the sinful heart that all sin proceeds. The heart is the cage or nest, which is full of these unclean birds, and from whence they take their flight. Though the occasions of sin are from without, yet the sources and original of sin is from within. Learn that the heart of man is the sink and seed plat of all sin, and the fountain of all pollution. The life could not be so bad if the heart were not worse. All the irregularities of our lives flows from the impurity of our hearts and natures. Oh,